Good morning. Uh, Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be in verses uh, 25 to 29. Romans chapter 2, 25 to 29. uh, And Josh has already read that for us. And so um, we're not going to read the whole thing right at the beginning. But um, as the ushers are are taken, let me me just... uh, Say a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning, and and thank you for the opportunity to to be here and to worship together. And and Father, we thank you for the fact that that you have called us together as as your community. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in this room and downstairs as well. Uh, God, we pray that you would be glorified this morning. And uh, Father, we pray that that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would be uh, the center of this morning's service. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, as we look at Romans chapter 2, what we've had really through this entire chapter is uh, the Apostle Paul aiming to deal with hypocrites. Uh, Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a church in Rome, a first century church in Rome. The church was kind of split. Uh, Part of it was uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, and the other part were, uh, were Jews who had gone there. And most people think that the church in Rome began uh, from Jews who came to Jerusalem, probably at Pentecost, uh, for the celebrations going on at that time. And they were saved uh, during that time, and they went back home to Rome. And so they, that's the kind of the church went there. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is writing a very in-depth theological letter on uh, what to believe, how the gospel is, is central to the Christian faith, and, and those sorts of things. Remember, the Apostle Paul has never met the recipients of this letter, so that is why he is so thorough, so deep, all right? And so we have the church, it's probably kind of split in half, and there's, uh, we get some ideas that there's some tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Gentiles. Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is specifically addressing the Jewish members of this church. Okay, remember, these are people who are moral. They know right and wrong. They, they have their, uh, their Jewish backgrounds and customs and those sorts of things, uh, but they are faithless. They are without Christ. It's important that we recognize that while they are kind of religious on the outside or moral on the, on the outside, that they are not righteous on the inside. They are not saved. Uh, they do not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's who he's addressing. Right? So throughout chapter 2, what he's been doing is he's been attacking every area that the Jewish people would, would rest their faith in. They would say, well, I, Paul, I don't need your gospel. I have the law. I don't need your gospel. I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm part of you know, God's elected people, God's chosen people. I don't need your, um, I don't need your gospel, Paul. I, don't you know who we are? And Paul goes throughout the second chapter of the book of Romans, and he says, yes, you have the law. Yes, you're uh, God's chosen people. Uh, Yes to all of these things. Yes, all of these things are true, but all of those things condemn you. They will not save you. The only thing that will save you is Jesus Christ. Okay? And so that's kind of what's happening in Romans chapter 2. Now, What we're going to find today is the Apostle Paul is specifically attacking the um, kind of these these people who are not Christians but have this false assurance, okay? And so 
Uh, look in the back of your bulletin. There's a little uh, box thing, a big box with four little boxes. And um, what we have, um, I had one earlier. I don't know what I did with it, but I don't have it. It's okay. I don't need it. Um, on the back of your bulletin, um, look in your box. And on the, on the top right, uh, I want you to write down believers who have assurance. Okay, take out a pen or mark it with some eyeliner or whatever it is that you have in your bag. Um, believers with assurance, top right. Okay, in the upper left box, you have believers who do not have assurance. These are Christians, but they, you know, they're weak in their faith. They, they're not, uh, they doubt, okay? And then in the lower right-hand box, you have unbelievers who have assurance. These are not Christians, but they have assurance. They believe that they are Christians. And then in the bottom left, you have non-Christians with no assurance. They are not Christians, and they know they're not Christians, and they know that they have no hope. Okay? So, you have those four boxes, right? What the Apostle Paul is trying to do today is he is trying to take the non-Christians who have assurance, and what he's doing, really throughout the, the second chapter of Romans, but specifically in this passage, he's trying to take that group of people and move them to the box to the left where they're unbelievers without assurance. He's trying to show them and demonstrate to them that they are outside of Christ, they will not be saved, and they, they're headed towards condemnation so that ultimately he can give them the assurance of the gospel and they can become Christians with assurance in the top right-hand box. All right, so he's addressing those people in the bottom right hand. He's looking to move them left and then up to the top right. That's what he's looking to do, okay? So those are kind of the four groups of people that he's dealing with. So Paul is speaking throughout this passage to what we, you know, the bottom right-hand group, you call those gospel hypocrites, Right? Those who have a profession of belief in God, but those who have no saving faith. Okay? And this group of people still exists today. While they might not have the same Jewish roots and customs and background and all of that stuff, there are people who say that they believe in God, trust in God, and, and they might even claim to be a Christian, but they have no faith. They don't trust in Christ. They trust in themselves. Okay? So Paul is working hard throughout this entire chapter of Romans to bring arguments against um, gospel unbelief, to demonstrate to them that they need the gospel. It is essential for salvation. So what is he doing this? He's, he's defeating every argument for their assurance. He's attacking their assurance. Their, uh, he's going to attack their divine election, their calling, their possession of the law. And then in this passage today, they're going to throw out one more leg of the stool for their assurance, which is the ceremonial law in circumcision. Okay? So he's going to attack circumcision and demonstrate to them how circumcision does not equate to righteousness. All right? So the possession of the promises uh, of the covenant that was sealed through the sign of circumcision. And, and Paul says, uh, look, all of these things, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, will do you no good. The law, the circumcision, whatever it is, none of it leads to salvation. None of it leads to salvation. All of these things are false assurances taken apart from the promise of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's Paul's point here. 
So he's knocking out, again, every argument that they're trying to find assurance in so that they'll recognize their need and then come to Christ and then be able to have real truth, real salvation, and real assurance that never fades. So that's, that's all Paul does, uh, really through this entire chapter. It's pretty deep, it's pretty heavy, and, and uh, it's very doctrinally rich, um, but that's, that's how he addresses this group of people. And this is also the conclusion of his argument against specifically the Jewish people in this congregation. In chapter 3, we'll see that everyone's condemned and everyone needs the gospel. It doesn't matter who you are. Okay? So, in verses 25 to 27, what we find is that um, external signs really mean nothing apart from internal truths. Right? Having, uh, he deals with their argument from the law and their argument from election, their argument from their calling, and now he's going to undercut their uh, argument from circumcision. And essentially, they say, you know, Paul, we don't need your gospel. We've got circumcision. Right? We're the inheritors of the covenant promise given to Abraham. Paul, look, look at our forefather Abraham. Look at the promises that God gave to him. We are circumcised. We, we are, we're them. We, we receive that promise. And Paul basically comes back to them and he says, look, you can claim that the sign of circumcision, um, you can claim the sign of circumcision all along and all through your life, but your heart does not show signs of heart circumcision, heart transformation, true consecration to God, true love to God, true love to your neighbor. Your heart shows absolutely no concern to be obedient to God's law. So yeah, you're circumcised. Yeah, you have the outward sign of the covenant. But your heart shows nothing. Your heart shows nothing. Paul's continuing to diagnose this spiritual problem in the religious people. And that spiritual problem is hypocrisy. And they're, they're deluded. They're comfortable and they're secure. And they have no sense of urgency. But they're headed straight towards condemnation. They, they, they will not be saved. Notice Paul is saying that they're unbelievers who have assurance. Remember, that's, that's in your bottom right-hand box. Let me, let me tell you, those unbelievers who have assurance are hard. It is difficult to demonstrate to them that they need grace, and they need mercy, and they need to repent. It's hard to demonstrate to someone who is not a believer but, had, but thinks they are that they need to repent and, and turn to Christ. So the apostle is throwing out really every argument that can come to mind to undercut their assurance, not because he hates the Jewish people or, or wants to, to hurt them, um, but because he loves them, because, um, because they're his people and he wants to see them come to Christ. He doesn't want them to be spiritually deluded, have this false hope, but he also doesn't want them to be secure. He doesn't want them to, to find assurance in something that, that is going to lead them to hell. So every place that they're placing their trust other than Jesus Christ, uh, he's cutting it down. The law is going to condemn you. Uh, your election, it's going to condemn you. Your calling will condemn you. Your circumcision will condemn you. Christ only, Christ alone is what saves. He's saying to them, you need the grace that is supplied through the gospel. You need the, the grace that, that's, that comes only through Jesus Christ. Don't look to these other places. Don't look to, to anything other than Christ. 
Yeah, sure, circumcision is good, and the law is good, and all of these things might be good, but they don't lead to salvation, and if you put your hope in them, they will condemn you. He's speaking of Jews who have defended themselves by their appeals to these different things. And he says, he says look, a life pattern of disobedience to the moral law, to to love God and love neighbor, overthrows your superficial adherence to the ceremonial law. You you come back and you give me the the ceremonial law. You say, yeah, we break the moral law. We break what God expects of us, but we have these ceremonial laws. Now, let me pause for a moment and just, I'm going to give you a brief uh, understanding of, of the differences here. The moral law are summarized in the Ten Commandments, by the way. Um, They're the things that, that God judges us on. Remember earlier in the chapter, we're going to be judged by our works. Not to salvation, but we, we're, the things that we do, the sins that we commit, we will be judged. And the moral law is the standard by which God judges us. So do these things. Don't do these things. You know, Don't commit adultery and don't steal and be honest. All of those things that we find in the moral law is how God judges us. Now, the ceremonial law... It's, they're just symbols of the covenant, okay? And so circumcision is one of them. It's an, it's an outward expression uh, of the covenant. It's, it's supposed to represent what's happened inside in the heart, okay? So uh, just so you know, the ceremonial laws were fulfilled by Christ because they pointed to Christ. The moral law has not been fulfilled. That's why it's still wrong to commit adultery or murder or those things, right? Okay, so what we have is Paul is saying, you break the moral law. You, you show no concern for the moral law. You don't care about the moral law. You get God's lip service, and as you're breaking the moral law, you say, well, no, no, it's okay, Paul, because I adhere to the ceremonial law. Yes, I commit adultery. Yes, I do all of these things. Yeah, yeah, I'm dishonest and, and all of that. But I've been circumcised. I, I've been cir- I, I have the sign. My parents did that to me when I was a baby. I'm I'm in. I'm okay. Paul says, you you don't understand. You can't put your faith in that because the ceremonial law represents what is supposed to be happening inward. They say, well, you know, we've been circumcised. He says, I don't care because your life is in defiance of the moral law of God. And the whole reason that God gave the ceremonial law was to confirm the reality uh, in the moral law. And, and the moral law itself is not a way of salvation. It's just the standard by which God judges us. Even the moral law won't save you. Only Christ saves you. It's an expression of life having been received by grace through the redeeming work of God in the Old, in the old Covenant. God didn't say, keep the law and I'll bring you out of Egypt. He said, I am your God. I brought you out of Egypt. Now keep the law. Do you understand there's a big difference there? So uh, these things that you're placing your security in, they're they're only going to condemn you. You've got to have the gospel. You need the gospel. Yes, you're a Jew. Yes, you have all of these things. Yes, you're a part of the covenant. And yes, yes, God made promises to Abraham. But those promises pointed to the gospel, and here you are rejecting it. You're rejecting the Messiah, the promised one. And so none of that other stuff will save you or redeem you. This is not just a, this is not just a new covenant, New Testament principle. It's, it's also an Old Testament one. 
Let me show you. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Open your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Um, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 17. And by the way, um, it really is no mistake that Jesus comes to use this to summarize the moral law and calls it the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting with verse 12, says this, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. What's the response to the grace of God if one has really received it? We hear the, even in the Old Testament, what, what is the response to the grace of God if, if we really receive it, really believe it? It's to circumcise our hearts, isn't it? That's what it is. We even saw that in Deuteronomy. And so uh, the Apostle Paul here is saying in 25 through 27, he's saying your circumcision is of no value because your hearts are not circumcised. You may as well not have even been circumcised, not even gone through it. And because your hearts aren't circumcised, it's as if you're not circumcised at all. It's as if you never received the law. You never received the promises. You never received the calling or the election. You never received the covenant because you've rejected the heart of the covenant. The covenant pointed to Christ, and you're rejecting Christ. Therefore, you don't have any of that stuff. You don't have the old covenant because you're rejecting what it pointed to. Last week as well as this week, um, this, this portion of the letter would not have been well-received. I don't know if you understand that the, the culture, the Jewish culture back then, but saying something like this would have been extremely offensive to the, to the Jewish audience that, that the apostle sent this to. To say that they may as well not have been circumcised, that they may as well not have, that, that circumcision didn't matter because their hearts weren't circumcised. What, what the Apostle Paul is saying to them in here is not designed to be hurtful just to hurt them, but it, it totally would have gone against everything that they believed. It, it would have been contrary to everything they thought they knew about God. And yet he says it. But, but it's not a new concept. Remember, we saw it in Deuteronomy. And then we're going to see it again in Jeremiah chapter 31. Go ahead and turn there, Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, he's explaining his vision of what the new covenant was going to be like. Uh, he does that in, in uh, 31 to 34. And uh, he says this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, again, there's the dream of the covenant, the new covenant, right? And, and these will be the people who have the law in their heart. 
And Paul's saying, look, you people are, are telling me that you're a people of God, and I don't see the law in your heart. There's no evidence of it. And I don't see your love for God. I don't see your love for your neighbor. I don't see a real obedience to the law of God or, or, or love for his word. I don't see a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah of God. So don't be assured. Do not rest. Do not be comfortable. You're unbelieving, but you're secure, and that's wrong because you're headed towards condemnation. You cannot rest or find comfort in anything other than Christ. And Paul's kicking out from under them another prop that, that they're basing their security on, which is the ceremonial law, which is, you know, circumcision represents that. So Paul, uh, so um, is he doing it so that they'll be miserable? Is he doing it to hurt their feelings? Absolutely not. He, he, doesn't, want them to, he doesn't want to hurt them generally. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to make it so that they won't trust in something that will fail them in the end. He, he doesn't want them to trust in something and find comfort in something and, and think that they found salvation through something that leads to condemnation. And so, yes, I'm sure it was painful for them when they first read it, but Paul's words are true and they're not unique to him. They were a part of the promise from the very beginning. He longs for them to embrace the one thing that can give them the security that they need. He, he, he wants so desperately for them to come to Christ. And here's the thing. He's not only talking to first century Jews. He's not. He's talking to us as well. This absolutely applies to us. How often have you talked to a person uh, who has no interest in God? No interest whatsoever in Jesus Christ. No love for God, no love for his word, no desire to even demonstrate any kind of obedience to his word, no love for the people of God, no sign of the fruits of the Spirit. I mean, this is someone who, who they might claim to be a Christian, but they're demonstrating zero signs. They, this is someone who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they, they do not worship Jesus at all. And when you talk to them, about faith or spiritual things, what, what's their response? Well, I, I walked the aisle. I signed a card. I made a decision. I grew up Baptist. My dad is a deacon. I was in church all the time. Whenever, whenever the doors were open, my family was there. Of course I'm a Christian. I, I made it all the way through Awana. I, I did youth group all the way up until I graduated. Yeah. I did it all. But did you notice, did you notice when you talk to people like this that it's always past tense? It always is. You know, this happened when I was a kid or, or we did this when I was younger or I came to Christ 20 years ago. And nothing's happened since then and, and I've got no drastic changes but I, I know where I'm going when I die. Yeah, I did all sorts of things. I, I was always at Bible study. In fact, I, I would go to all these different Bible studies of every church in town. I was at Bible study every night of the week. It's past tense. The question is, where is your faith today? It's not, the question isn't, did you once upon a time, did you once when you were a kid, at one moment, choose Christ? Follow Christ, trust Christ. 
The question is, are you trusting Christ now? Because so often what can happen is, and I'm not saying that, that, you can, that you can get saved when you're young and then lose your salvation at some point. What I'm saying is, is that, uh, especially in evangelical Christianity, we have a bad habit of convincing people that they're saved when they're not. We have a bad habit of scaring someone out of hell. We, we talk about how hell is so terrible and so awful and God's wrath is real. And what happens is, is someone says, well, I don't want to go to hell. That, that's scary. That's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to go there. I'll come over here. I'll do whatever you say. I'll walk the aisle. I'll sign the card. I'll repeat whatever prayer you say as long as I don't have to go to hell. And so the, what's happening is, is as Christians are sharing our faith and we're evangelizing, and even though it's done in good intention so often, what we can do is we can convince someone that they've been saved when they haven't been because they're simply scared. They do not have a genuine saving faith in Christ. And then we turn around and we say to them, there is nothing that you can ever do that will separate you from your God, which is true if they were saved. But they're not saved. And it's not a genuine faith. They're just scared. And sometimes they're manipulated. And so we come across people, and it, it, 30 years down the road, they're still living as though Christ, they've never even heard the name Jesus Christ, as though they've never entered the door of a church, as though they've never heard the gospel. And they say, I know where I'm going because, because my dad was a deacon. I know where I'm going because I went to a youth rally once when I was 12. The question is not, what have you done? The question is, where is your faith? What, I'm not asking what your faith was like when you were 12. I'm not asking about those things. I'm asking, do you trust in Christ today? Do you rely upon him? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Do you worship him? Do you love him? Or do you simply say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you don't love him, you don't demonstrate any kind of reverence for the one you claim to worship? That's a real thing that real people in America today go through. Are you trusting in Christ? And if so, how is that demonstrated in your life? How? Because if it's not demonstrated in your life, then my challenge to you is to search your heart. And I do this honestly. Search your heart because if you're not, if you find that you've not been transformed, if you find that you're demonstrating none of the fruits of the Spirit, but you're finding comfort then you need to evaluate something. And repentance certainly needs to take place regardless of where your faith resides. The possession of a sign. For the Jews, it was circumcision. But for us, it's baptism. Possession of a sign means nothing apart from real grace and righteousness, real faith. And by the way, this is, this is one of the reasons that, that we as Baptists, along with most Protestants, um, believe that baptism, um, you know, the, the, the sign, is not absolutely necessary for salvation. Okay, while it is important, one of the most important things that you can do. And, and um, it is not necessary 
for salvation. Look, there are many churches that teach if you are not baptized, that you are going to hell, right? And if that's true, then the thief on the cross is in trouble. Even though Jesus told him, this day you will be with me in paradise, that man was not baptized. Why is it they're not absolutely necessary? Because the Apostle Paul says that those outward signs set or demonstrate an inward reality. And the inward reality and absence of the outward sign is as if the is is as if you have the outward sign. I know this is difficult. The outward sign and the absence of the inward reality is as if you have never received the sign. So what what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 2 is that even if you're baptized, for Christians today, even if you're baptized, but you you do not inwardly have a genuine faith, then it's as though you've never been baptized. That's what it's saying. And even though you've been baptized... Right? If, you, if you've been baptized and you don't have that inward side, you don't have that genuine faith, then it's useless. The sign is useless. Therefore, there may be some circumstances where a person is unable to receive the sign, baptism. And don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing baptism. I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from being baptized. Being baptized. Baptism is, is one of the greatest moments of your life. It's one of the greatest things about my job is that I, I get to be a part of people's baptism and, and see their transformations. And we don't make light of baptism. We don't neglect the sign. But there may be some circumstances where it's impossible for a baptism to take place. If someone comes to Christ on their deathbed, for example, and they're in the hospital, and they hear the gospel, and they, they, they have a genuine saving faith, it might be impossible for them to be baptized. The outward sign is not equal to the reality. It's, it's a sign, a symbol. It's a beautiful symbol, but it's a symbol nonetheless. There will be some circumstances where the outward sign cannot be applied, but the inward reality makes it as if the person has received that outward sign. That's one thing we learned from this passage that really is important for us to remember. We also learned in this passage that Paul was laying the groundwork for how the Jew and the Gentile will relate in the kingdom of God. They will be made into one household. So that those who are uncircumcised, it will be as if they were circumcised. It's one people. And those believing Jews who have trusted in the Messiah as their God and Savior, they too will be united in one house, no longer separated by the ceremonial law. It will be Jew and Gentile together, one people, one household. Mostly what Paul is saying to us, though, is that we need the gospel. He's saying to those who are secure apart from Christ, those who are uh, secure apart from a living faith, they they feel as though they've got it, they feel as though they're achieving it and doing it, and they're safe and they're comforted. He's saying that apart from the righteousness granted by God, no one can attain the state of being accepted by God. He's saying, look, if, if you are not saved, if you have no faith, then you have no righteousness and you should be terrified to stand before the Lord. Who are you to to say that you've got it? Who are you to say that you're righteous before God? He's saying to people, he's saying this to people who are religious. He's saying this to people who are moral. 
who know right and wrong, and they, they, they try to do the right thing, even the right thing, biblically speaking. Paul is speaking to, to that person in the bottom right box, to the person who is not a believer, but who, is, who has assurance. He's telling us we must place our insur- assurance in Christ and in Christ alone. If it's somewhere else, then you're lost. If it's somewhere else, you're condemned. And Paul doesn't want us to be there. He wants us to be in the top right box, the believer who has assurance, who trusts, the believer who's been transformed and is saved, who loves Jesus and worships Jesus, loves his word and and seeks to obey his word. There's a second thing that we get out of this passage, though. It comes in verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Essentially what's happening here is the Apostle Paul is redefining what it means to be a Jew. And he teaches us here that the righteousness of of the new covenant is inward. Though it's expressed outwardly, the righteousness comes from inside. It's inward rather than just external. And it's not ceremonial or ritual or symbolic. And he gives us four contrasts to help us know the difference between true righteousness and false righteousness. Uh, And so the first one comes in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. In other words, Paul contrasts perceived righteousness with real righteousness. He's not a Jew merely outwardly, but he's one who is inwardly. Next. Notice what he says, nor is circumcision outward and physical, okay? This is a person who's been circumcised by the flesh. Um, That's ritual righteousness. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, according to the apostle. Circumcision of the heart, that's real righteousness. Next, notice uh, the contrast, the letter and spirit. By the spirit, not by the letter, he says in verse 29. This is a contrast between mere compliance with the ceremonial law and spiritual adherence to the moral law. Right? He's, again, he's contrasting here. And then finally, notice the contrast. Praise from men and praise from God. Right? It, just like Jesus had critiqued the Pharisees whose desire was to be praised by men. That's what Paul's doing here. He's bringing up the same criticism. Right? And Paul does a play on words in verse 29. When he speaks about the Jew whose praise is not from men but from God. Right? Judah, maybe you remember from the Old Testament, is the word where we get the word Jew. And the word Judah was connected in the Old Testament to the idea of praise or the word praise. Right? So uh, let me give you an example. Jump to Genesis chapter 29. Turn to Genesis chapter 29, uh, verse 35. And Leah is speaking here. And it says this. Uh, Leah has given birth to Judah, and this is what she said. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. You see the connection there between uh, praise of the Lord and Judah? Notice again, Jacob speaks in Genesis chapter 49. Jump over to Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. 
right? This is Jacob speaking. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And so Paul says the true Jew connected this idea of praise is praised not by men nor by mother and father or onlookers or peers or friends or anyone else, but by God. This person, the, the truly righteous person, longs to be praised by the Lord and is not concerned with the praise of men or the affirmation of men. This points to Matthew 6.1 when Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Practice your righteousness before your heavenly Father so that he who is in heaven can see your deeds of righteousness. Do not practice your righteousness before men to be praised by them. Paul's doing a play on words here is, is what he's doing. The, the difference between inward and outward righteousness is that outward righteousness is superficial. It's only perceived. It's not real. It looks real, but it's not. It doesn't penetrate the surface. It doesn't come into the heart. It doesn't flow from a heart that has been redeemed. It doesn't flow from a heart that has been spiritually regenerated by the work of God's Holy Spirit. And then the Apostle Paul says, look at your life. If your life only bears marks of that superficial righteousness, then maybe your trust has been false. If, you, if your faith is superficial and, and external only, then maybe your faith isn't faith. If you pursue righteousness and morality in order to be praised by men, then maybe your faith is not in Christ. Maybe you've never really known what it means to receive the grace of God. Maybe you, maybe you don't understand what it is to be saved by Christ. You don't understand what it's like to have your heart of stone taken out and your heart of flesh put in. So turn to Christ. Flee to him. Turn to the gospel. Beg for mercy. Paul's, Paul's undercut everyone who says, Paul, we don't need your gospel. And it, the apostle makes it absolutely clear. And so today, we have to ask ourselves, remember, this doesn't just, just apply to the first century Jews. This applies to us as well. And the hope is that, that you, will, um, you will evaluate your heart. You have to ask ourselves to look at our lives. Look at what we believe. Along with that profession of faith, do we see true love and adoration for Jesus Christ? Do we, do we hold him in high esteem? Do we love his word? Do we acknowledge the authority of the scriptures? We call him Lord, we call him Christ, but do we really believe that he is? Or do we just give him lip service because that's what other people might want us to believe? We claim to worship Jesus. We claim to love Jesus. We claim to be a child of God. But do we live that way? And these are honest questions. I can't answer it for you. Are you just giving lip service? Because that's how you were raised. You're, you're raised to, to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Have we grown in love to God? Have we, have we grown in love? Do we, do we love God? Do we love our neighbor? Do we love the people surrounding us that we live with? Do we love our church? Or do you leave here on Sunday and badmouth it? Do you care for your neighbor's soul? Or just about where he stops cutting his grass and shoveling his snow in the driveway? 
Do you honestly care? Do you, do you love Christ, the one you claim to worship? Have you seen the, the Spirit working in you? And those, those fruits of the Spirit, are, are the fruits of the Spirit demonstrated in your life? Are you being more and more conformed to the desires of God and not your own? Not your own desires of your flesh. Have we been captured by a spirit of truth? The Apostle Paul is saying, if we don't see the marks of the Spirit's work in us, ask the question, am I trusting Christ? I don't doubt that we claim Christ. But so often, so often, Rather than actually trusting in him, people give him lip service. And they see him as some sort of good luck charm. And it happens time and time again. Are we trusting in Christ for salvation or are we trusting in our own morality? Are we, are, am I trusting in Christ for my salvation or am I trusting in my grandma's faith for salvation? Don't trust in that which cannot give you assurance. And what we find in the scriptures is your only source of assurance is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. The gospel of Jesus Christ as he's offered in the scriptures through the gospel. That is the only place to find assurance. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. And God, we thank you for the fact that God, we thank you that we have your word and we can trust it and we can, we can see how you have revealed yourself to us through the scriptures. God, we know that, that you are the God of heaven and we're not and you deserve all honor and all glory and all praise. We know that even while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us, for the sins that we committed. Father, I pray that if there is someone here who, who, is, not, uh, who, is, who is not a Christian, who does not have a genuine saving faith, but for some reason has assurance. I pray that you would crush that assurance. I, I ask that, that you would reveal to them their sin and their need for a Savior, their need for repentance. I ask that you would allow them to do that and lead them to do that. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you are gracious, you are merciful, and you are good. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.